You're listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. In each episode, we'll talk about two themes from our 2018 reading challenge, 10 to Try. Learn more about the challenge and see a list of all the categories at kcls.org slash 10 to Try. First up, read a book about food. We'll take you on a food lover's tour of the Pacific Northwest literary scene. Get ready for interviews with chefs, authors, and more. been curious about why some people just love bitter or super spicy foods? What does umami actually mean, and how can you compensate when you've accidentally oversalted a dish? Becky Salengut answers all of these questions and more in her book, How to Taste. She invited us over for tea and a chat about the art and science of taste. My name is Becky Salengut. I'm the author of How to Taste, as well as a couple other books, Shrimp, Good Fish, and Not One Shrine. I'm a cooking teacher at the Pantry Cooking School at PCC Markets. Um, I'm a freelance writer for Serious Eats, and I also co-host a comedy podcast called Look Inside This Book Club. You've written about recipes with foraged mushrooms, cooking with fish, and eating your way through Tokyo. What inspired you to tackle the subject of balance in food? So I was teaching a class at the pantry on, I think it was soups, and it was the end of the class, and I was turning, I was going to just adjust the, the seasoning on the soup and, and serve the, the students, and I took a, took a bite, and I added a little salt, another bite, added more salt, added a little bit of lime, and added a little bit of fish sauce, tasted it, was like, all right, turned around, and the class was just staring at me, and they're like, that's the class we want to take. And I was like, what? They're like, everything that just went through your mind in the last two minutes. That's what we want to learn. And my first thought was, well, you kind of have to be in the restaurant business or food business for 20 years. And that's a horrible thing for a cooking teacher to, to you know, think because I want to make this stuff approachable and accessible to people. So I started basically watching myself like a zoo animal. Like, what are, what are the things that I'm doing? What are the sounds I'm making? What are the gestures I'm making? How do I know when there's enough salt, etc.? And so that turned into a class, and then the class turned into a book. What's the best thing that a budding chef can do to teach themselves how to taste? Hmm, that's a great question. So, you know, honestly, I, I and this is not like to just say, oh, read my book, but like I, I, <laughs> I wish I had this information when I was in culinary school because we learned a lot about wine tasting and um, different kinds of salt to use and what are different types of acidity, but we never really understood how to exactly to, to know in your own palate when something is wrong, what to do. And that sort of just came with experience. And so I think a budding chef needs to actually dig into the, the, the kind of the, the books on taste and flavor to give themselves a, a background and to take classes on it and to dive into it because it's no less important than someone learning wine, taking wine tasting classes. And that's everywhere. But has anyone ever showed you how to taste food? No. Uh -uh. And so I literally take people through how to taste food so you can get the most out of it. And without joking. (laughs) (laughs) And there is a cocktail recipe in your book for a Manhattan. Can Mm -hmm. you speak to sort of how that recipe can teach you balance? Sure. So a lot of people think about bitterness as something bad only, and the Manhattan is one of the most popular cocktails, um, and for good reason. It's really uh, multidimensional. It just has a, it's a lot of natural balance in it. For you know, It's obviously a, a spirit-forward cocktail, but it's got a lot of internal balance. So what I 
decided to just try randomly in my kitchen one day was, um, is I'm going to leave the bitters out. And how does that change the flavor? And, and it was so mind-blowing to me that just one dash of bitters in a cocktail that only has three ingredients, rye, sweet vermouth, and bitters, the absence of the bitters, which is just one dash, so like a quarter teaspoon perhaps, the, the drink became really hot and boozy and like something maybe your grandfather would enjoy like on a back porch somewhere, <laughs> like in the moonshine sense. <laughs> um, and it was cloyingly sweet from the, the vermouth. And it had no interest. And it just, its it, you would taste that and be like, this isn't going anywhere. Like if you were a bartender coming up with a drink back when the Manhattan was developed, probably in the turn of the century, you would, you would be like, well, that's not going anywhere. Nobody like that. You add that little quarter teaspoon, that little dash of bitters, and all of a sudden it's like, it's like a ranch house all of a sudden turned into a, a castle. It just, it blows out the experience into this like multidimensional thing that the booze is less hot and sharp, the, the sweet vermouth is no longer cloying, and the bitters and the, the complexity of those bitters add all of this deep interest to it. And so it's, it's perfectly balanced, and that became something that I thought would be fun to include as an experiment, and so simple. Just leave the bitters out and see, see what you think, you know? And I love the chapters on bitters. I feel like they're sort of getting their moment in the sun, as it were. But I'm wondering how much of that is cultural. Like, there are these pictures of me at Thanksgiving as a kid with, like, an olive on every finger and a plate of pickles. And just, like, (laughs) I came out loving mushrooms and eggplant and Brussels sprouts. Oh, wow. Makes me wonder if you're a tolerant taster, actually, which we can maybe have time to talk about. (laughs) But that, that makes me wonder. But it's always been that way, and I especially love, like, kimchi mm-hmm. um, and really strong, fragrant foods. I definitely think you're a tonic taster. We should definitely <laughs> te- talk about this more because uh, it, it does so much matter about your genetics, mm-hmm. and it's all about taste bud density and also exposure. So the fact that you came out eating these very strong flavors and continued into adulthood, I mean, do you drink coffee? I'm drinking it right now. You can't see. <laughs> and did you enjoy it when you were a child? Did you, did you take a sip and Very not? early. Very early. Okay, this is very classic 25% of the population tolerant taster. Lower density of taste buds. Don't feel bad. It actually means that you're the least picky person in the room. And that all you really require in your food is sometimes is more oomph. So you're reaching for salt. You're reaching for chilies. You're reaching for big, bold flavors like kimchi because you're literally literally trying to get more information to your brain. Now, I eat the same thing that you eat. I'm, I'm an average taster. I have a higher density of taste buds. And I'm like, oh, that's enough. I don't need that much stimulation. Mm-hmm. And my wife, April, who's a, a sensitive taster or a.k.a. super taster, nothing super about it, <laughs> extremely picky, <laughs> it's like her tongue is slightly, um, for lack of a better metaphor, autistic. It's getting incredible information and information overload. And so she wants to kind of put a blanket around her tongue because it's like too much. Some of the cultures that have the highest level of bitterness in their foods are actually genetically more likely to be tolerant tasters. Indians and Chinese genetically are higher percentage of tolerant tasters. Women are more likely to be super tasters or sensitive tasters. So all these things really do play a role. You can push people so far. You can help people learn how to taste more acutely to their taster status. You can help sensitive tasters learn how to use salt to, to suppress bitterness so they enjoy their food more. But, you know, at some point you just are going to smack up against you just personally as a tolerant taster, you're going to need more salt and more information, you're going to often feel like food is not horrible, but bland and boring. 
And so that's what, that's what you require. So knowing what that is and knowing how to work around it is good information for chefs and for home cooks. And I'm curious, I know that you teach classes. If you find that when couples are coming together, <laughs> that there are common themes. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I'm a marriage counselor at my how to taste classes because you off, I often get these couples coming in and one of them is dragged the other one because they're like, it really annoys me when you put salt all over my food or ketchup or sriracha. And yeah. And, and at the very beginning of the class, as I start teaching, you see one turn to the other with just this, like, mm -hmm, that's why you're here. And then I quickly <laughs> tell people that every single person is right at the table and that throughout the class, they're going to learn that if they drag a spouse, and I actually say it because you can see the couples all just there that you'll be sorely disappointed if you've brought a spouse here tonight to call them out as having a weak palate or, I don't know, uneducated palate. It's, everyone's right. I sort of think of cookbooks in kind of two categories. These big sort of uh, foundational or reference books, like How to Cook Everything and the Flavor Bible and that kind of stuff. And then sort of unique focus books that highlight a particular style or an ingredient or one chef's work. Do you have favorite cookbooks in either or both of those categories? Mm. Um, so in the food world sense, mm -hmm. um, you know, some of the ones you just mentioned are, are obviously key. The, the Flavor Bible helped me during culinary school, especially to learn about what went with what. Cook's Illustrated um, Best Recipe also was kind of pivotal to me a long, long time ago, and, and still sometimes I'll refer to it. James Beard, um, Julia Child's books, uh, Jacques Pepin's books. Um, so sort of the classics actually have taught me a ton. I also really like The Food Lab from Serious Eats. Kenji Lopez-Alt, his book is, is, is wonderful. And then in the other category, there's just loves, what I call the In Case of Fire books, which ones I grabbed before I would leave the house. <laughs> just after My Wife and Dogs, um, I would grab the Herb Farm Cookbook. Uh, Jerry Chonfeld's my mentor, and that book is basically part of my soul, I think, because I worked through every recipe in that book at cooking. I cooked there for four years at the Herb Farm. So the Zuni Cafe Cookbook by Judy Rogers is also pretty seminal to me. Um, and then I'm going to call out a book that nobody knows about. It's um, the Cabbage Town Cafe cookbook. And this is only probably going to, maybe two of your listeners who spent any time in upstate New York will even know what it is. It's a little hippie cafe. In, it, it was in Ithaca, New York in the 70s and 80s. And um, they just did food from all over the world. And they did it well. And their recipes were solid and I learned how to cook with that book in college. So I sometimes flip through it. It has a duct tape on the binding. It's barely held together. And that I have to take that out in case of fire. So while we're talking about other people's food writing, do you have favorite non-cookbook food writing? Oh gosh, so much. It'd be so hard to, to pick. I'm, I don't have any like new ones. I just always go back to MFK Fisher because yeah. I think she's wonderful in so many ways, but she's so funny. Yeah. Like she's yeah. very, she's so witty. Yeah. She's very witty. She's very like, um, she's very like cutting, but in sort of a loving way, you know, like she does not spare herself from her own, like mm -hmm. sharp observational remarks. But MFK Fisher, for sure, because of her wit, and she's an amazing writer. Um, but Lori Colwin, who many of your readers might know because she's, she's people really love her writing. Um, she's got a book called Home Cooking, and uh, she's got this wit, this, like, this sharp wit. It's so, her writing is so funny and, and so right on. Um, 
I'm reading this book right now by Jane uh, Ziegelman called 97 Orchard. I don't know if you've heard of this one before, but it's an edible history of five immigrant families in one New York tenement. It's, it's really entertaining. It's really great. So uh, I would definitely recommend that to your readers as well. I grew up in uh, New Jersey, New York area, uh, from a Jewish family, so this is tracing a lot of the history of the kind of immigrant families in New York that you know, my family came from. So, uh, I love history, and I'm reading uh, Edward Rutherford's London um, because I'm actually going to London soon, and it traces the whole history of, of London from one family's perspective from, you know, like a thousand years ago. And that's a country that's sort of not necessarily known for bold flavors. Um, are there any aspects of British cooking that you're really looking forward to experiencing yeah. firsthand? Well, you know, I think that that's like, it's true for, for sure, like if you're going to have just classic British food. But because it's such a... Um, uh, welcoming environment to people from all over the world, and there's so many people there, um, so many uh, Indians and so many uh, Muslims as well. You just have a, a nice, rich diversity of food there. So when we go, we're going to be going to uh, an Indian restaurant. Um, uh, so I'm looking forward to some of the kind of international food seen in England and London, particularly. So um, that being said, I, I, I would never kick a like Sunday roast dinner out of bed. I think there's something extremely comforting and wonderful about fish and chip. I, I like that too. So, Especially with the squeeze of lemon. Yes, of course. <laughs> and for you, some hot sauce and more salt. And then vinegar. And vinegar. <laughs> All of it. All of it. Just dump everything on top of that. So because I'm one of those tasters, I yeah. like garlic so much that when I got to the part of your book where you said that you discovered an allergy to it, I was just heartbroken for you. How did that happen? <laughs> oh, I appreciate it. I felt that. I felt that even before I'd ever met you. Um, well, I would actually say in a kind of first world complaint moment that that was really a, a bad day, a bad couple days, because I love to travel and I love to eat everything and I love hospitality more than anything. So for me to make people feel at home and give them whatever they want, I also like turning that around and being fed by whoever wants to, f to feed me. And now I have this problem where when I travel um, or when I go to someone's home, I have to be that person, and it's that was the hardest bit for me. But on the other hand, the more important revelation from it is not only do have I become much more sensitive to people who have special diets and eating restrictions, and now I am extremely excited to cook for people who can't have certain things because it taps into my creativity, but I've also learned um, partially what inspired me to write the book, actually, is how to learn what exactly, what space does an ingredient occupy and how can you make a substitution based not necessarily on garlic tastes like garlic, but what does garlic do for your food? And garlic does very specific things for your food and they have to do with several chapters in my book. Bite, which is that sharpness it gets, sweetness when it's cooked, um, aromas. Uh, and so how can you reverse engineer garlic so that I can use it in my cooking and people won't know it's missing? And for the most part, I've been able to do that. I'll, I'll cook a eight-course meal for clients, and I'll ask them all at the end of the dinner what main ingredient that you cook with, probably every dish you ever make you reach for, is not in this. And they're baffled. They cannot figure out what it, what it could be. And they guess all sorts of wrong things. And then finally someone says, garlic? And they're like, no. And it's hard for them to believe. And, and what I discovered is it doesn't taste literally like garlic, but a mixture of caramelized fennel, some truffle salt for the funk, and the fennel for the sweetness, 
some raw ginger for that bite, and a little pinch of this Indian spice called asafoetida, which is also sort of that sulfur funk that the garlic gets. That mixed together and added to food, you won't know. Unless it was something like 40 clove garlic soup, you would know. <laughs> you know, or maybe something that had raw garlic, which is just so pronounced, like a hummus with raw garlic. You, you would know there was not raw garlic in it. But other than that, people have no clue. That's so creative. So it's it just I had to do it out of necessity, and then it I'm such a nerd that it made me dive deep deeper into this subject of you know my students are always asking me well, how do you know what to substitute one thing for another? Well, if, if if you don't like capers, you can't just leave capers out of a recipe because you're not just leaving capers out of a recipe. You're le- you're literally leaving salt, acid, and umami out of a recipe. So how do you replace that? Well, olives are a great substitute because they represent the same three things. And if you don't like olives, or you don't have olives, you need to replace acid, umami, and salt. So find three separate ingredients that do that, or find one that has two and one that has one. It's literally math. So it's been fun to kind of dig into that stuff and give people more of a um, concrete, approachable map to how to make these decisions. It's not just creativity. Sometimes it comes down to what does it represent and how do you fit that into one into another. One of the things that really struck me about the book is what you just said, sort of this balance between the creativity, but also there's a lot of science in it. Can you talk about sort of how you got interested in the science and then how you do the more scientific part of the research? Yeah, so um, I have several scientists in my family. I I wanted to be a doctor originally, and um, I have a great interest in science just personally, but I'm not a scientist. I consider myself a citizen scientist, someone who just reads a lot about science and then likes to try and interpret that for a non-science audience, like myself, you know. So when I'm researching a new book, I, I, especially this book, so science-based, I spend about a year just reading everything I can. Um, so I read a lot of books that most people will not watch to read so that I can find the three or four gems in them to share. And that's interesting to me. And I loved it. So I, I, I also wanted to be a librarian, you might want to know, <laughs> um, because of how much I love books and reading and research and also helping people find answers. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot in common between librarians and teachers mm-hmm. and uh, authors, probably. So, um, yeah, so I, I also don't... I also am humble that I don't know a lot and I'm always learning. And so going to science means that I can kind of back up my statements with something concrete versus just sort of saying something just mm-hmm. because I've heard of it. Mm-hmm. So it was important to me with something like this, not only to give people that kind of dive into the science behind it, because it is very science-based, but also to know that um, uh, I was on top of the research and, and that I was providing not only sort of practical information to people on the creative side, but also the science that would um, give them confidence that, that this is something that, that you know, has data to back it up. On a warm Thursday evening, I walked the quiet streets of Spokane until I heard the familiar sounds of laughter and music that indicate you found some kind of revelry. 
I'd arrived at the Washington Cracker Company, an old converted brick building, and after a quick check of my ID, I was welcomed inside to partake of pie and whiskey and literary readings inspired by both ingredients. We sat down with authors of Pie and Whiskey to talk about their project, how it came to be, and what Pie and Whiskey might tell us about American identity. I'm Sam Ligon. He's Sam Ligon. And she's Kate Lebo. Yeah, I'm Kate Lebo. For the uninitiated among our listeners, give us a short history of Pie and Whiskey. Pie and Whiskey started at the Port Townsend Writers Conference, where Sam and I happened to meet. I tricked him into making a pie with me. He didn't know that I was a big pie maker. Um, But we found that first night that if we made this dessert and if we added a bottle of whiskey, all these writers that were really kind of nervous and trying to figure out who was maybe published in the better place and who was coolest, they would just like stop all of that ridiculousness and like each other. Um, and so we kind of got this idea that here's two substances that make people like each other. Why don't we throw in some readings? Readings are often boring. Uh, we're always looking for ways to engage uh, people who don't normally come to readings to readings. Um, handing them whiskey and pie seems like an obvious way to do it. Yeah, and I think I mean I think when, when it started at Port Townsend, we were really just doing it. For we were just baking, and we got a bottle of whiskey, and said, "Let's bring, let's invite the other writers." And they came, and we had a lot of fun with them. And then we kept doing that at the conference. And then when Kate's first book came out, she wanted to go on the, she was going on the road and looking for ways to promote a book, and it was a pie book. And that's when we came up with the idea of the actual reading, which is in a venue, and we picked a venue that held about three hundred people that we did not think that many people. Right, it's actually just like three blocks from here. It's the Woman's Club. Yeah. The Spokane Woman's Club. We go to so many readings, and so many of them are just bad. They're boring. The writers might be good, but the readings themselves are boring. So we're like, how can we make this fun without it being too fun? You know, because if it's just whiskey, it's going to be not a good reading because you're not going to be able to hold the room. And and who wants to do that? So the combination was really weird, I think, in, in that we like to bake. So we were like, we can bake these pies, and that's something people want. And there's a kind of sweetness to it. And then we like to drink whiskey, too. I'm like, okay, we'll get, we'll put those together. And because we've been doing that in Port Townsend, it was a really cool thing. Okay. And I think then it the, was kind of Saturday night and Sunday morning. We've had the experience before where we just do a whiskey reading and it gets really dark. <laughs> it gets really dark. So the pie is very necessary to this component, getting just hitting that sweet spot of a really fun party with all the friends that you haven't met yet from your town. So how did you go from these live events to selecting some pieces and turning this high energy sort of exciting fun event into a book? Well, how did we do that? That, I mean, that was a hard part because we did want to capture the excitement and the energy. And of course, you can't really do that on the printed page. My my concern was creating a book where it's like, well, you really had to be there. It was a great party. Who wants that book? Right. We didn't want to make that book. We wanted to make a book or make the the, uh, occasion of a book an opportunity to highlight how good this writing was and kind of what happens um, when you get these two pie and whiskey, these foods that are that are real foods that we imbibe, but are also kind of symbols, um, American symbols, American symbols and have people, you know, engage with them in all these weird ways. So we the first thing that we figured out was we had to have some kind of structure. We decided 
eight um, sections, like eight slices for a pie. Why not? Um, what we also wanted to do was ask some of our favorite writers to just really go for it. Give them a lot of room they could take. Right. And then I based pie recipes off of each of those long pieces. So the first long piece in the book is Jess Walter's mm-hmm. Whiskey Pie. Um, there's this great scene at the very end where two brothers are drinking a very, very soupy pecan pie. It's soupy because they put like a fifth of whiskey in it. Mm-hmm. And so that inspired these pecan pie uh, shots where you take pecan pie filling, you caramelize it, you smush it into a muffin tin so it gets that kind of shot shape, pop it out, paint it with chocolate, fill it with whiskey, take the shot, eat the shot. Oh, my God. It's fantastic. It's awesome. It is so good. (laughs) And every one of the recipes, Kate, developed, developed out of the long stories. Some people will, when we say, will you write about pie and whiskey? They'll be like, I kind of hate pie and whiskey. I hate the way that this is a symbol of an America that I don't recognize or feel um, safe in or excited about right now. And they will come and they will use pie and whiskey as an opportunity to critique uh, where we are at as a country um, through those substances. And that's awesome. That's part of the, the, we, this container has to be that large for it to be interesting, you know? So we're, we're excited when people take that prompt and really mess with it like that. And if we're going to bring alcohol front and center like that, we yep. got to welcome the problem with alcohol. So, yep. we, so we're going to have people come in who do not drink, who have stopped drinking and are going to write about how alcohol undid them. Right. You know, and I think that's a good part of the event too, just that you know, we want a lot of different kinds of voices about these substances. And again, also about the American thing. We didn't know, obviously, how the election was going to go when we started this process. We knew where we stood a little bit as a country. But when we were putting this book together, we realized this is really American. I mean, there's something about these two things. You're not going to do this. You know, American is apple pie and something about whiskey. It just feels so people. So that comes through the writing. People are writing about weird American stuff. And I think that Saturday night, Sunday morning thing feels really American, too, that we're both, you know, a, a, we're a nation of bars and we're a nation of churches, you know, and, and both of those influences, the way that they smash together makes good writing. Yeah. Nina Mukherjee first Studio has a really cool long piece in here about she's um, Bengali and grew up in Kansas. And she was writing about this tension between wanting to fit in and not wanting to, and wanting to stand out, like wanting to be exactly who she was um, in this very, very white place where she was clearly not, didn't have this, what does she call it? Like the same um, already understood story as all of the other people that she went to school with. So her story, she really gets, uh, gets into a, moment with her family and a pie and um she she passes off a store-bought pie as her own and she's lied about it and everybody loves the pie and And she she calls it pie fraud right and they really want to bring her into the family they're like you made this beautiful pie and she's just like it's it's i'm living this lie (laughs) Um, fantastic Exactly. I think just the, that the occasion of having to write about this very American food stuff when Nina, I mean, she's a food writer. She's writing about her Indian heritage. She's writing about Midwest food occasioned this cool piece where she was able to hold both the tension of, I want to be part of this family and part of this community with, I want to be myself and I don't want to have to blend in with all of the, you know, predominantly white culture around me. It's really cool. So speaking of food writing outside of 
the pieces from the events and from the book. Do you have a favorite or a, you know, momentary favorite cookbook or a piece of food writing? This is called Curry. It's by Nabin Ruthnam. This is a really cool literary study of um, South, South Asian diasporic literature and the way that food shows up within those books to kind of mark them as South Asian, but then the way that it also becomes this horrible cliche um, that people, that these writers are feeling bound by. So he's super funny, super smart, just goes into it. Um, totally recommend it. I think food writing is, sorry, just, I just think food writing is such an interesting genre too, for the way that it has, it's, we expect it to teach us something Mm -hmm. practical. I mean, I guess we expect fiction to teach us how to be better people. Sam Sam would say, people say that, right? And Sam would, would argue against that, um, utility. Right. That that's not really what we want fiction to do. I don't think so. Yeah. But you have another complaint about food writing. I do have another complaint about food writing that I think is so often it's, um, the, the genre requires a kind of palatability that makes it so boring. Just so much food writing is really boring to me. And I'm not talking about um, food journalism. I think that's a completely different genre. Mm-hmm. I think I'm talking about the, the the form that I work in, which is often the personal essay, the food personal essay, mm-hmm. when it is um, hobbled by that palatability. It's just mind-numbingly boring, and I can't stand it. Hmm. Which is why I like this book. <laughs> There's a series in our paper of just, how often does that run? Monthly? Of food, of food writing, which is stuff that happened. What's it called? What does she call it? I think she's just calling it a personal food story. And it's just people writing about food in their lives. And it's writers in town. they're not food writers. They're right? not food writers. They're yeah. writers who are writing about food. So it doesn't feel like it's in that ghetto of, I'm going to do food writing now. They're just, but because we can all write about food. Right. You know, and so I love those pieces when I encounter them. But Kate also likes really, really complicated cookbooks. So like everyone else in the country, Adelangi. You know, those books. But those aren't that complicated. But, like, but once you start making them, you're like, oh, not, let's layer some vegetables. They're not complicated to you. Let's get some sauces. Let's, like, put twice as much cheese and twice as many herbs on as you think it should have. And then put it on a platter and you're done. It's a gigantic platter of yeah, food. Yeah. And it's pretty complicated. <laughs> there's a lot of steps. There's a lot of steps. There's a lot of steps. But there's, not, there's a lot of steps because they're written down. I right. mean, there's so many types of cuisine that become just impossibly complicated mm-hmm. when you try to write them down. But they really, because they really are practices in the kitchen. And, and trying to record all these gestures makes it this impossible document that nobody can follow. I think the fun, like the, the cool thing, the frustrating thing about writing recipes is the, there's a, there's a point within the specificity that you're going for where people, actually the more information you give people, the less they will understand. And it goes the other way too. The less, if you don't give them enough information, of course they won't understand. It's like, how do you get that, that sweet, sweet spot? Um, and I think that is what we encounter in some really complicated recipes. It's just, this is a recipe that you probably need to learn in person or it comes, it's being extracted from a cook's practice and it actually doesn't really work mm-hmm. in the same way. Once it's been extracted, it has to be within that continuum of well, the practice. I mean, I'm just thinking of some of the recipes too, that you wrote in this book, in the pine whiskey book, how you do it and then couldn't quite replicate it and then had to change and then couldn't quite right. replicate it and then had to keep adjusting it until it was, could be replicated. Right. The pecan pie whiskey. Exactly. Shots, that was, cause I don't know how to do caramel. I learned <laughs> with that book. I'm not, I'm pie, not candy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally different. Do you have a secret to a perfect pie crust? You gotta keep the butter cold. 
and what about my fingers? Use your hands. I mean, no, I used, the, the, I used the, to have it, it just roll off my tongue. <laughs> well, the, and the I've best taken tools, a break actually from <laughs> the best tools are your hands. So I used to make crusts with so people use pie cutter, but you know, cutter or um, food processor. And Kate doesn't do that. So when you use your hands, as long as they're not too hot, that's crucial to a good crust. Yeah, I think just keep the butter cold, keep the water cold, don't touch it too much, go by feel with somebody else who's really good at it that's the best way to learn it's i mean i love pie. I make a lot let's just keep making it sure I mean, practice <laughs> kate was writing a piece for you know visit washington visit washington it's one of those hilarious freelance pieces but like can you for 150 dollars, will you tell us the best pies in washington state for the entire state and i <laughs> foolishly but we are all yes. over the state we drive we are all in a lot of places yeah we are in a lot of places. Um, I spent my entire, you know, fee on yes. bad slices of pie. <laughs> but that was the thing. We did not have one piece of pie that was anywhere near as good as one of ours. Except there was one in Roslyn. Oh, yeah, the Roslyn good. Cafe yes. that was being made by the daughter of the owner yeah. of the general store on that same street. And, and that you was, could get it on, like, Fridays, which, of course, that's the perfect story. It was fantastic. And that was... That was <laughs> Huckle- like, I'll take it. <laughs> it was a Huckleberry pie, right? It was Huckleberry Blackberry. It's fantastic. They had to stretch, because Huckleberries are super expensive, so they stretch them, but still really good. But we do... We get good cherries over here, too. So when we when we get cherries in... When do we get them? June? July? July. We get, like, 35 pounds. Yeah, it's right around 4th of July. It's just fantastic. And then we pit them all night. <laughs> It's fun. Yeah. Oh, do you have a favorite pie and or cocktail recipe in the book? Oh, I'm proudest of the funeral pie recipe, mm-hmm. which is based on Judy Blunt's recipe. There's a great writer in a great book. Have you read Breaking Clean? Mm-mm. Wonderful memoir. It came out in, I think, 2001 of growing up in eastern Montana. Judy is just like this like powerful writer, baker, teacher, and she, um, bakes with us in, in Missoula and she made this funeral pie. Um, and it is sour cream, it's raisins, it's, um, lots of spices and it's actually good. There's many really? versions of this pie <laughs> that are no good. Mm-hmm. So I adapted Judy's recipe by making creme fraiche instead of using sour cream, because originally this pie would have been made to use up cream that had gone bad. Mm-hmm. Out of four. It's a rotten pie. Right. <laughs> but Judy's funny too, because she's so good and she's she's a she's a pie lady, so she's competitive. So if we say, Oh, you know, we are doing we're gonna be in Missoula, can you contribute four pies? Judy will be like, sure, she'll bring twelve. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right? And, and it's twelve different kinds. Yeah. Is it also made for the occasion of someone's death? Yes. Funeral pie. Yeah. Well, and well, and it's because you can make it all year round. Is the deal that's right? The, that's that's what I'm guessing. The mythology. That's, that's what some of the writing that I've seen about it. I haven't seen anyone really go in depth and do um, research, research, research. Um, the way that we haven't seen that around funeral potatoes. Right. So that the cocktail recipes were fun because they're, they're also all history based. Mm-hmm. But it was also a lot of them were written around the time of the election, so they were. Um, there's a little rage in the cocktail recipe. Yeah, they're quite pointed. Some of them. <laughs> <laughs> but we got one review by a reviewer in DC that she she said, um, yeah, "I don't understand this book because you can make these pie recipes, but I don't I don't know how to make these cocktail recipes. <laughs> <laughs> all you have to do is make a Manhattan. It's all you have to do. <laughs> make a Manhattan and have a you know 
a little laugh. neighborhood is beloved for its Cuban sandwiches and chocolate factories, but there's another destination food lovers must visit, and it isn't a restaurant. The Book Larder is a unique bookshop that offers new and vintage cookbooks, food writing, author events, and cooking classes. Shop owner Laura Hamilton joined us to talk about her favorite books about food. I'm Laura Hamilton. I am the owner of Book Larder, which is a cookbook store in Fremont. And I don't know what else would you like to know about me? (laughs) Tell us a little bit about the store. So the store opened in 2011 um, with the idea that cookbooks should be sort of a living thing for people. Um, We were very much opening in the era of online recipes really taking off, um, online bookstores really taking off. And I still felt like there was a need for and a real desire for people to touch and hold and interact with cookbooks. And so we opened the space in 2011, like I said, with a kitchen in it so that we can teach cooking classes and host author events. And so when people come here to shop, um, or to meet an author or whatever, they can also taste something from a book. They can have a much more sort of a deeper interaction, I guess, with both the subject matter and the book itself. When you're thinking about like living cookbooks, uh, what do you look for in a cookbook? Like what makes a great cookbook in your opinion? So I think a great cookbook obviously has very well-written recipes. Um, and, To me, that means that they are descriptive, that they are as accurate as possible, and that they teach you something, whether you're a new cook or an experienced cook. I also think a great book needs to have a strong point of view and a really good voice from an author, just like a just like a novel would. Mm -hmm. You know, that's um, because I think that's what separates a cookbook from just going online and randomly searching for recipes is that you you understand when a book is real well written what the person's perspective is on food, you know, how they approach cooking and how they approach recipes. And you can decide whether or not that works for you. And it just helps you engage, I think, much more fully with a book. Do you have a set of cookbooks or a single cookbook that you go back to time and again? I so my I always say that my gateway cookbook and I, I continue to go to it regularly, was Deborah Madison's Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone. Mm-hmm. And that I was a vegetarian when I, when I bought that book. We actually got it as a wedding gift. I didn't buy it. Um, and for me, that was just a completely eye-opening book as a vegetarian because the food was fresh and vibrant. She had that strong point of view. She shared sort of stories about her life, and there were, you know, sort of little vignettes with the recipes. Um you know, vegetarian food doesn't have to be brown and boring. And she sort of, I think, was one of the authors that really helped bring it out of that sort of fake meat era. Um, (laughs) And so, and so there's that book. Um, I really love Jerry Tronfeld's Herb Farm Cookbook. Mm -hmm. I've owned that for a long time and I go to that regularly. Um, I think because it's, uh, 
has beautiful recipes, but also depth on growing and using herbs, which, um, again, when I was a vegetarian, but especially now that I'm not, are just such an important part of cooking. And I feel like that really teaches you something. And then more recently, a book that I'm using a lot is Joshua McFadden's Six Seasons. Mm -hmm. He's a Portland chef and the book is so, so often chef cookbooks can be very much sort of restaurant recipes that can be difficult for a home cook to replicate. And these are very accessible home recipes that really cover the breadth and depth of vegetable cooking, not necessarily vegetarian, but lots of interesting ways to use vegetables. And as someone, you know, who's been cooking them for a long time now, I sometimes will read one of his recipes and just think, oh God, why have I never thought of that? You're like, <laughs> so obvious. But I use that book a lot and really enjoy it. Yeah. So I'm someone who has a tiny apartment and even tinier kitchen. I rely way too heavily on takeout and delivery and subscription boxes to feed myself, and I'm trying to cook more. And a few of the cookbooks I've loved recently were Cherry Bomb, mm -hmm. Dining In, and Salad for President. Do you have any other suggestions for someone who maybe doesn't have like a fully stocked pantry or all the gadgets and wants to make simple but interesting recipes that, if I'm being honest, also look kind of nice on Instagram? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Amy Pennington, who's a local author, wrote a book a few years ago called Urban Pantry that, I mean, I will be honest, does not have lots and lots of photos in it when you think of kind of the Instagram thing, but you will get dishes that will be very Instagram worthy for sure. Um, and will also be very delicious. But she wrote that from the perspective of someone who was living in a small space. And, um, you know, if you were going to have sort of core ingredients, what should those be? She even talks about like, how should you store them so you can see them easily and have them not take up a lot of space and things like that. So I think that's an excellent book. That sounds perfect. Yeah. There's also a really great book by Clancy Miller called Cooking Solo that I think is great for people who are just cooking for themselves, but want to do that in a way that, well, let's just put it this way. When you're cooking for yourself, you're worthy of a good meal, right? Like that's, and, and everyone is, right? And so um, I think sometimes... People can think, oh, it's just me. I'm just going to like eat a bowl of cereal or whatever, or I'm just going to make myself the same bowl of pasta that I've eaten every night for, you know, the past month. Um, but she has a lot of great ideas for scaled down, fresh, delicious recipes for one. Um, sometimes where you make like a couple of other components that you might use in another dish, you know, so, so that's a really excellent book as well. And have you noticed with reader interest lately that there's a new avocado toast or poke bowl, that there are food trends that are emerging right now? Well, I will say, I do think the vegan, I think veganism is becoming more prominent. I've, I've really noticed we, we import a lot of books and so I pay a lot of attention, attention to what's going on in the UK. And over there, it's really taking off. And we've definitely found an uptick of people who are newer vegans coming in, really wanting to figure out how they eat that way. Um, you know, I think it's environmental as much as anything else. You know, sometimes people are doing it for health, but I think there's just a lot more awareness of sort of plant-based eating and, and um, the benefit it can have for the planet. So, Ironically, I have the opposite problem. I'm a former vegan and I have no idea how to poach an egg. <laughs> I feel like I'm still learning some of those basics. Yeah, no. No, I feel you. I'm, I'm a former vegetarian. And so people will come over to my house, you know, and I've roasted a chicken and then I have no idea how to cut it. Yeah. That's, and they're always surprised. It's like, you want a cookbook store. How can you not know how to do this? I'm also a former <laughs> vegetarian and I was a vegetarian 
like in high school and college mm-hmm. and a little bit after. And that's when I learned how to cook. So it's the same thing. It's like, yeah. oh my God, I have to carve this chicken now. <laughs> or like, you know, my husband's like, I just really want a steak for my birthday. And I'm like, I don't know how to cook a steak. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you want an elaborate cake? No problem. But <laughs> yeah. that's a whole, it's a whole, we're always learning. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are there any Pacific Northwest authors who you think really highlight the bounty of our region? Oh, there are so many. Um, so, well, Renee Erickson, I think um, her book um, about a whale and a walrus really beautifully captures the produce and the, um, you know, sort of basically everything we have available in the Northwest. Um, she, again, kind of takes that seasonal menu approach to the book, and it's just really lovely, comforting food um, that sort of uses all of our star ingredients. Um, I mentioned Jerry Tronfeld's book. I think that's wonderful. Um, Jonathan Sundstrom's Lark book is um, just a sort of a quintessential guide to Northwest cuisine. Um, You know, Tom Douglas wrote Seattle Kitchen, I think in 2000. Yeah. And that, I mean, that book is a classic as far as I'm concerned. Like it's... um, it's got, I mean, it's got several go-to recipes in it that I make. I've been making ever since I first bought the book. So, um, I mean, there are, there are so many. And then you've got authors like, um, like Rachel Yang and Xiao Ching Chu, who are sort of using the Northwest produce, um, but um, they have sort of other great traditions on top of that. You know, Rachel's Korean and Xiao Ching is Chinese. And so they bring sort of their backgrounds, which are also kind of quintessentially Seattle as well. So final question, um, KUOW recently threw out to its listeners and readers, um, if there was one Seattle dish, like our version of the Philly cheesesteak that Seattle should be known for, what do you think is an iconic <sighs> Seattle food? And their stipulation was you can't say the hot dog that has cream cheese on it. <laughs> You can't say that? Yeah. <laughs> See, it's so funny because I didn't grow up here, but what I would say is teriyaki. Yeah. I was so surprised when I found out that I believe it was It was here. invented here, basically. Yeah. And and I will say, I mean, I moved here from the Midwest and I, in the, whenever I moved here, but, um, but I was really taken aback by how many places basically just sold chicken teriyaki. And I was like, what is the deal? You know, know, I expected to see, you know, certainly a a broader set of ethnic restaurants, but, but there was this very specific dish that seemed like it was everywhere. (laughs) I want to see a like teriyaki renaissance in Seattle. Cause you're right. Like I didn't grow up here, but I came here a lot as a child and I feel like they used to be everywhere Yeah, and now they kind of have gone away. They have, yeah. So I want to see, I want to see teriyaki come back, yeah. but I, that's, what's, that's what I was going to say too. Yeah. Teriyaki. Well, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, of course. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Another 10 to try reading challenge category is read a book suggested by KCLS staff. To help you cross off two categories at the same time, we'll share the best books about food that we've been reading lately. So my first pick is What She Ate by Laura Shapiro. This is six sort of mini biographies of notable women that focus on what the women ate and didn't, who they ate with, how they cooked, and all of these details about food in their life. So the women included are Dorothy Wordsworth, the poet's sister, Edwardian chef Rosa Lewis, Eleanor Roosevelt, 
Ava Braun, uh, Hitler's consort, author Barbara Pym, and Helen Gurley Brown, the legendary editor of Cosmo. Shapiro uses documents from journals and menus to reconstruct the culinary lives of these women, and the book is full of fascinating insights that you might not get in other places. For example, the Roosevelt White House was known for being a terrible, terrible place to eat out. Everyone in Washington, D.C. knew that if you wanted a good meal, steer clear of the White House. And yet, Eleanor refused to have the chef fired. Read the book to learn why. And my next pick is The Cooking Gene by Michael Twitty, a journey through African-American culinary history in the Old South. So I should start by confessing I haven't actually read this, but it's been on my to-read list for a while, and since it won the James Beard Award for both writing and book of the year this year, I feel confident recommending it anyway. The author is a blogger and a food historian, and the book follows his travels through the South, looking at the culinary history, especially of enslaved people, and the way that it impacted Southern cuisine in general. It combines elements of genealogy, memoir, and food writing. It sounds fascinating, sobering, and delicious, and I can't wait to get my hands on it. So some of my favorite food books include Cherry Bomb, which is a cookbook based on a magazine of the same name. They strive to support women in the world of food by sharing their stories. And this cookbook highlights stories and recipes from amazing women you might know, like Padma Lakshmi from Top Chef, icons like Martha Stewart, but also supermodels. So for example, you can learn to make Carly Kloss's spicy ginger cookies or Chrissy Teigen's crab and avocado rolls. And there are also recipes from some of my favorite restaurateurs like local chef Renee Erickson, Jessica Kozlow of Squirrel in LA, and Christina Tosi of Momofuku Milk Bar in New York. There's a little passage in the introduction that I think sums it up perfectly. We prefer a recipe that's the equivalent of a sweater borrowed from a girlfriend, a dog-eared book your sister lent you, or the weird knick-knack that belonged to your grandmother. Dependable, interesting, nostalgia-inducing, and maybe even a little quirky. I think that just sounds so lovely. Another one of my favorites is Hot Dog Taste Test, which is this irreverent, hilarious book from Lisa Hanawalt, an artist who's published graphic novels, but is probably best known as a producer and designer for the Netflix series Bojack Horseman. And I fell in love with Lisa's drawings when they were gracing the pages of the now-defunct food magazine Lucky Peach. Hot Dog Taste Test is gratefully not about the titular subject, but instead contains things like her James Beard award-winning illustrated story when she followed a chef around the city of New York tasting all the delicious street food it had to offer. She also provides David Chang-approved baking tips, advice on which wine pairs well with a good cry, and has some controversial thoughts about eggs. What is a controversial thought about eggs? Well, she agrees with me, which is that the eggs most people love are the worst ones. What? I must know more. A poached egg. What? It's my nightmare. Just like the goo. Like, I know that people love to even just like take Instagram videos and then like cutting into it at brunch, but it's it's not for me and not for her. Shame. Like a poached <laughs> egg is a delicious egg. And most people would agree. <laughs> you are not wrong. That's a controversial thought about eggs for sure. Thanks for listening. You can find all the books mentioned in today's episodes in our show notes. The Desk Set is hosted by librarians Britta Barrett and Emily Calkins, produced by Britta Barrett and brought to you by the King County Library System. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts.